episode, let me tell you about one of my favorite events every year. This year, it's May 2nd through May 5th. The location is Malibu, California, Pepperdine University's campus. The event is Harbor, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Uh, If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know I love this event. It's one of my favorites every year, not just because it's like beautiful Malibu, but because they have some of my favorite people in the world who always show up at this event. And so I think y'all, as some of my favorite people in the world, my listeners for the podcast, should join me there, should be a part of it. Uh, This year, you'll be there along with friends of the show like Richard Beck, Bob Goff, Suzanne Stabile, who she and I are doing a couple sessions together in the Enneagram. Uh, Esau McCauley, who's just on the podcast, he's going to be there. Mallory Wyckoff, who just was on the podcast, also will be there. Uh, Stormont, Josh Graves, Wade Hodges, plenty of other people that you will know and be grateful to hear from are going to be speaking at the event. So I hope you join me May 2nd through May 5th in Malibu, California for Pepperdine University's Bible Lectures. Let me tell you something about Malibu, though. Be warned. Two months ago, I did a chapel talk for Pepperdine, and I brought with me my middle daughter, Adeline. And within mere moments of being on campus, she says, Dad, uh, I think this is where I need to go to school. And I was like, I, I, I understand why you're saying that. It's a beautiful place, great, great place to be. And that's what you're going to think May 2nd through May 5th if you join me at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures Harbor. It's like their 80th anniversary. So, you know, it'll be great. Hope you're there. Now, uh, this week on the podcast... I want to play you a sermon. And the reason I want to play this sermon for you is because one of the things that I think is at the heart of what I try to do in this podcast is bring together different perspectives and different people in a hope to make the world just a little bit smaller, uh, specifically those who are trying to navigate faith in the modern world, to realize that... um, I think everyone has something to offer and that we can learn from each other. We can be part of this shared quest of being faithful to what the creator of the universe continues to do in creating new life and new things in the world as revealed to the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's what uh, I love to do in the podcast. And that's that's kind of the heart of what this sermon is. So I want to play this sermon for you. Uh, there's at least one reference to the podcast. and Actually, there's two. Uh, the first one, I reference a Pentecostal friend. Now, if you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you might remember many years ago, I had a gentleman named Jonathan Martin on the podcast, and he talked about why he thinks it's important for churches to not drop like their denominational name, uh, because it makes them hold on uh, to their sins of the past. I think that's what he specifically said. And I found that to be deeply moving, not that like there's something wrong with dropping, you know, the name or dropping a denominational tie and the and the marketing for I don't think there's an issue there. I don't, whatever. But what I think is really important is that we all have to own up to where we come from. And so I, I referenced that in the podcast. And uh, one of uh, the the people I got pitched recently uh, to have on the podcast, which you know the episode didn't happen, but there was a guy whose publicist was, uh, hey, uh, Asbury revivals are taking place. Um, so and so is you know, loves revivals and he wants to talk about revivals. I'm like, bro, you're using this revival. You have nothing to do with as a way to market some whatever. And I I get the hustle. I get like, you got to get the word out for the work you're doing. That's just how life is these days. But um, anyway, you can hear that as a background for something I reference in the sermon. But uh, nevertheless, check out the, the, the sermon and uh, I hope you appreciate it and appreciate you guys listening and um, have a good one. See you. 
If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of John chapter 17. John chapter 17. If you're visiting, thank you so much for investing your morning with us. A couple days ago, this, earlier in this week, I went for a walk with my, one of my daughters. And as we were uh, a little ways away from our house, she asked me, that what would you do if we get lost when we're walking? I was like, I, I know I'm getting older, but I'm not that old yet where I'm forgetting where I am in my own neighborhood. But I said, well, what I would do is if, if I found myself in a position where I didn't know where I was, I'd just pull out my phone. Pull out my phone, and my phone would tell me, this is how you get back home. It would show me this little blue dot where I am, and then it would tell me how to get back to my house. The problem in life is there are times that we find ourselves off course, and we don't know where we are. But it's not always easy to pull something out and say, this is exactly how you get back to where you need to be. It happens to every one of us. We all find ourselves somewhat lost from where we should be, but it's not always easy to get back to where we should be. But one of the reasons that we gather is because we believe that the way for us to find our way home is through Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. If you were lost, we believe Jesus is the way back home. Because Jesus isn't just a retirement plan for us when we die, even though he is that. And Jesus isn't just a good example for how to live, though he is that. But he is, he's our everything. He is the very grounding of our existence. In him, we live and breathe and have our being. He is everything to us. And so one of the things that we're doing in the weeks leading up until Easter Sunday is asking, are, are there ways that I have gotten lost, gotten off course, ways that I've fallen short of the glory of God because I've been reaching for my own glory? And one of the ideas that we're talking about through John's gospel, like Chris mentioned earlier, is this idea of how did Jesus show us what glory looks like? There's a way of glory of the world, and there's the way of the glory of Jesus, and they're not the same thing. Because Jesus showed what glory looks like at his triumphal entry when he shows up in the capital city to be the king who is the one that everyone's been waiting for. He shows up not on his high horse, but on a humble donkey. That's what glory looks like for Jesus. But glory in this world looks a lot different. We don't do triumphal processions like Jesus. They look vastly different. Now, let me show you one that I've shown you a few weeks ago that was the most important triumphal procession of my entire life. It was February of 1993. It happened in the city of Dallas with my beloved Dallas Cowboys. Here's their victory parade after they won the Super Bowl in 1993. It was a great time. Life was good. It showed up on the TV when I pointed. Uh, there it is. There it is. It is a wonderful procession. The world is as it should be. The Cowboys have won the Super Bowl. God is happy. We're happy. Everyone is celebrating because the world is as it's supposed to be. But there is something that happened in that procession that might give a little indication of what happens when you live based on the glory of triumph like the world says this is what's glorious. Let's go to this next clip. Watch this. Watch what happens right here. Did you see that? The two guys who are most in charge of the Cowboys, one is the owner, Jerry Jones, one is the coach, and when they're holding up the emblem of victory, and watch what happens. Play that again. 
This guy says, no, give it to me. Is it any surprise they broke up soon after this? Is it any surprise they couldn't get along? Because that's what happens with the glory of this world. It's about who is holding the trophy, who is front and center. There was an NBA coach named Pat Riley who won nine titles as a player, coach, and as executive. And he talked about this with the phrase that he coined as the disease of me. When there's success, all of a sudden, I become a lot more important. And so you have this, these teams that start doing that. They fight over who gets the attention, who gets the credit, who gets the accolades. Because the glory of this world always seems to lead to division, whether it's sports or music or business or politics. It always leads back to me, and it's no longer we. But the glory of Jesus looks vastly different from that. Our text for today is a prayer that Jesus is going to have for us that shows us what glory looks like for us, and it looks vastly different from the world. Now, let me give you a little context. This is John 17, a text that we heard just a little bit uh, ago read by Chris Freeman. And what happens in this whole chapter is that Jesus is in some ways setting himself up like the high priest before the Day of Atonement. This is Leviticus 16. And what happens in those days, it was the highlight of the calendar for God-fearing people back then, this Day of Atonement. This is the day that the high priest would offer a sacrifice and the sin which divided God from God's people would be made right. It would be atoned for. And before this would happen, the priest on this most important day of the calendar would pray for three groups. First, he would pray for himself, and then he would pray for his priestly clan, his group of people, and then he would pray for all of Israel, all of God's people, all the 12 tribes. Now, Jesus in John 17, before the great atonement for all humanity, when Jesus dies on the cross, he does a priestly prayer. And it starts by Jesus praying for himself and then for his group of people, the disciples. And then the last one is for all, including those who would one day believe. All right, so let me, let me read this first section. This is John 17, verse 1. This is Jesus praying for himself. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. So Jesus starts by praying... That he would be glorified. Starts with himself. The second prayer, he prays for his apostles. Not that they would be withdrawn from the world, but that they would not be of the world. And then our text for this morning is Jesus' prayer for you and for me. And so if you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Starting in verse 20. Jesus says, I ask not only on behalf of these, 
but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Most of Scripture was written to a specific audience at a specific time that was probably about 2,000 years ago, specifically the New Testament. But this is a part of Scripture that was written, that was prayed for, not just people back then, but everyone who would believe. This is Jesus' prayer, not just for the people of the first century, or the second century, or the third century, but for us today. And Jesus' prayer for you is that you would be rightly related to each other. That because God looks at everyone as God's son or daughter, God says, you therefore are family and you should be united. Just as we are united, as Jesus says this to God. In verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. In Christian theology, there's this term called the Trinity. It's a term that you won't be able to find in the Bible anywhere, but you will hear hints of it throughout Scripture. And the idea of the Trinity is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all the same, even though they are uniquely different. In honor of St. Patrick's Day, the way that St. Patrick described the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. All the leaves are different, but they are all one, still a part of the same thing. In the same way that the Trinity, three in one, exist together in eternal community, Jesus says, I want my believers, those who will believe in me, to function the same way. That they would all be one and be united. And the vehicle that enables us to live together in the same way that God, the Father and God, the Son and God, the Spirit, live together in community is glory. The ability that we have to be united is the ability for us to not choose the way of glory of this world, which holds up our accomplishments and holds up how right we are and holds up our how good we can be, but instead the glory of Jesus, which humbly rides in on a donkey and empties itself others. And this is Jesus' prayer for you, for me, for all of us, that we would be one. 
Now, before I got to Westover almost eight years ago, uh, the leadership of the church put forward the vision, more than us, more than here. If you've been a part of Westover for any time, or if you've seen the signs on the walls on the way out, you might have heard of this vision saying, more than us, more than here. And part of the impetus behind this is that we want to be the kind of church that isn't just for us and isn't just about being here. It's more than that. And so there have been decisions made over and over again to include and to make more room at the table for other people to be part of this church. Uh, About seven years ago, there was a change that took place that caused the people who would get connected to Westover to become a wider group of people. Uh, After we changed the worship service styles, one of the things that we found in our Discover Westover classes is that the new people coming to Westover are no longer just all Church of Christ people. Uh, Before that, it was almost 99% people from Church of Christ background who were coming to Westover. Since then, that number has greatly increased of people who don't have any ties to our tradition in, in the restoration movement or the churches of Christ. It's different. And so for those of you who are new to the Church of Christ, and maybe this is the first time you've ever been to a Church of Christ church, let me give you just a little background on where we came from, a little background for who we are. So roughly 200 years ago, some people would put the year 1811, this tradition, this movement started known as the Stone-Campbell Movement or the Restoration Movement. It initially started as a unity movement to bring churches together. That was the initial impulse for the restoration, or it's sometimes known as the Stone-Campbell movement, which is Stone and Campbell are the two main leaders that started this. Now, it started as a unity movement, but within maybe 100 years, it became three different traditions. And so you had the Disciples of Christ, which compared to others in the restoration movement, kind of leaned more to the left. Uh, You have the Christian church, which compared to the others, a little more right, and the church of Christ, which compared to the others, are a little bit more correct. (laughs) It's a joke. It's a joke. But one of the main differences that you see in the church of Christ compared to the disciples of Christ and the Christian church is a cappella singing. If you were here seven or eight years ago, we had a historian, church historian from Abilene Christian University, which is the Church of Christ school, come down and talk to us about worship traditions in the churches of Christ. And one of the points that he made is that the reason that early churches of Christ were a cappella were less theological and it was more socioeconomic. Uh, The churches of Christ predominantly are in the South, specifically Texas and Tennessee. And after the Civil War, churches in the South had, had less money. And so unlike the churches up north that had resources to buy things like organs in the south, we didn't, and so we kind of migrated towards a cappella singing. Now, since then, some churches added a theological reason to that, which may be a little bit distant from the beginning of it, but that seemed to be one of the main differences from the churches of Christ and the Christian church and the disciples of Christ. But at the heart of this was a desire to create unity and to restore, restoration movement, to restore the church back to its beginning, which is a great impulse. Let's go back to the Bible and restore what the church was. That's a strength, but also it can be a weakness. It can also be a weakness. I've got a friend, a Pentecostal guy, who made the point, said one of the benefits of churches keeping their denominational name, their background on their building, instead of getting rid of that, is it reminds people exactly where they come from. 
both the good and the bad. And I don't cast any judgment on churches that don't have their name on their building. It's fine. Whatever they want to do, it's great. But one of the benefits of keeping it is that it forces you to name where you come from. Some of those are strengths. Some of those are weaknesses. And every tradition is like this. The largest tradition in America, the Southern Baptist Church, has that word Southern at the front of their denominational name, not because they like country music or because they like barbecue or because they like football. It's because they divided over slavery hundreds of years ago. That's where they come from. Every tradition has something in their past. And one of the things that many of us have to acknowledge is that this impulse to restore and to go back to the beginning can be very good, but it also can lead to an arrogance that says we are the only Christians. Which is why a conversation that I bet you've had if you're a part of the churches of Christ is someone said to you, oh, you're Church of Christ. Do you think you're the only ones going to heaven? That's part of where we come from. That's in our DNA. And if Jesus' prayer for us is that we will be rightly related to other believers, it seems that somehow in our history, our prayer is that we would be rightly related to ideas. Let us think right. Let's have the right behavior and the right ideas and the right concepts. And that's our prayer for ourselves. And Jesus' prayer is that we would be rightly related to each other. But we're the ones who got it right, and we're the ones who are doing it the way that the Bible said to do it. It can be a strength, but that can be a weakness for anyone doing this. Uh, here's a quote from N.T. Wright. And I apologize. He's going to use this word viciparious. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry he did that. Like, that's a terrible word to put in church. But, you know, he's from the U.K. I guess they do that over there. It seems to be the case that the more you insist that you are based on the Bible, the more viciparious, which means to segment and to create divisions, the more likely you are to divide, you become. The church splits into more and more little groups, each thinking that they have got biblical truth right. Let me be clear. It's not saying because you're based on the Bible that you become more divisive. It's because you insist that you're the ones who are based on the Bible. The more you think we are the ones rightly associated with right thinking, the more we start to fracture and divide and divide and divide. When I got to college, I had never been really to worship anything other than a Church of Christ church. My parents from the Churches of Christ, both sides of my grandparents are from the Churches of Christ. My dad taught until he retired a few years ago at Church of Christ universities his entire life. Always been from the Church of Christ. That's my family. I got to a worship service when I was in college, and a Baptist guy was preaching. And I was surprised that he actually preached from the Bible. Because I thought we were the only ones who did that. I thought he would just get up there and say, all right, turn to chapter 3 in The Purpose Driven Life. Like, I thought that's, that's what he would preach. But my arrogance assumed that because he was from a different part of Christianity, that he didn't care about being based on the Bible. Jesus' prayer for us is that we would be rightly related to other believers. Our prayer, unfortunately, has often been, may we be rightly related to ideas. And maybe the reason is, 
is because we think the closer we are to right thinking and right doing, the more likely we are to finally be atoned for. Jesus is the atonement that sets us right, that forgives everything we have done and everything we will do. We are rightly related to God because of Jesus. But sometimes we act as though our behavior and our thinking is how we will be atoned. And that always leads to division. That always leads to us thinking that maybe we're the only ones who got it right. And if we don't get it right ourselves, then we might not be the ones who go to heaven. Jesus had a different prayer than us. His prayer is that we would be rightly related to each other. And so instead of being on our high horse thinking we're the ones that got everything right, Jesus says, would you come in on a lowly donkey and think maybe we're not the only ones who are doing this. Maybe we're not the only ones trying to read the Bible and be faithful to it. Maybe we're not the only ones that are trying to follow Jesus. And if you do this, then maybe you become the end of Jesus' prayer our unity. Maybe you become the goal for unity that Jesus prayed for. There was a, a civil rights leader, na- uh, leader named the Reverend uh, Billy Kyle who told this story about a little boy years and years ago, supposed to be going to sleep, couldn't go to sleep, but he's looking out his window back in the old days where street lights were not lit by electricity, but there was a city worker that would light these gas-powered lamps every night. So this little kid, he's supposed to be asleep, and he's looking out the window, and he sees the city worker going from street lamp to street lamp, lighting these lamps. And so he goes, Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad, come here, come here, come here, Mom, Dad, come here. And so this parents come in this room. He looks out the window and goes, look, look, look. There's a man who's punching a hole in the darkness. And the Reverend Billy Kyle says, that's your job. Your job is to punch a hole in the darkness. And the way Jesus says you punch a hole in the darkness is by you take on the glory of Jesus and you humbly desire to be rightly related to other believers. That's how you and I punch a hole in the darkness. Let me read the verse to you that we just read a second ago. Jesus said this in verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So that the world may know. May you punch a hole in the darkness by being united with other believers so that the world would know. When I was in school in Abilene, I started preaching at this little country church in a small town called Moran. It's a town of 200 people, and we had a uh, Church of Christ, a Methodist church, a Baptist church, and a Pentecostal church in a town of 200 people. And so I, was pre- I preached out there for three years. It was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. Uh, the woman who, in many ways, ran the church, her name was uh, Audrey Brooks, uh, which is my youngest daughter's full name, Audrey Brooke Norsworthy, because she had such an impact on me and us. We love this place. Uh, it was probably one of the only times I will ever get to preach in a church that's located right next to a bunch of roosters that are be, being trained for fighting. <laughs> Haven't got to do that since, and that was a really special moment. I always felt like Peter was being betrayed every Sunday, just roosters growing. <laughs> and one of the things we did after about two years of me being there 
is that we decided that we're going to do a revival with all the churches in Moran. Okay, not the Pentecostals, that was too much, but the Baptists and the Methodists. Sorry, like we're doing the best we could. Um, but we did this revival. And so one night we had a service at the Church of Christ and we had the Baptist guy preach at our church. And then we went to the Methodist church and I preached there. And then we went to the Baptist church and the Methodist guy preached over there. And the amazing thing happened that after that three night little gathering, the whole town started talking about it. It talked about how special it was. And when I would stop at this store, which was the gas station, the restaurant and the community town, it's kind of the whole thing. It was like their mall, but it was just like one room. <laughs> People thought, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys did that. That was so awesome. Everyone was talking about it because it was unique. It was different. The world knew something. I think it was maybe six or seven years ago, uh, one of our then elders, Charlie Hale, messaged me and said, hey, I met uh, one of the priests across the street at St. Matt's. You guys need to go meet them. And None of us, I hadn't met at least, anyone from the Episcopal Church across the street. And so since Charlie Hale made me do it, I eventually reached out and we got to meet some of the people across the street at St. Matt's. That friendship blossomed and then maybe about a year later, the then rector, Merrill, uh, reached out and said, hey, we don't have any air conditioning in July and we can't meet uh, for a Sunday service in Texas in July with no air conditioning. So is there any way that we could come join y'all's service one Sunday? And we said, yeah, come on over, and, but, but be a part of this. We, we value you as neighbors. And what happened from that is there's this beautiful relationship that's grown. And now we serve together with the food pantry. Uh, we've, we've served together doing a, a cold weather shelter for those who are uh, going through tough times and don't have a place to sleep during some cold weather. Many great opportunities have happened because of that. And one of the things that you hear is from people in the community going, isn't that great how you guys get along? And obviously there are differences between us and the Episcopalians. There are a lot of things that were very different. And what our relationship together does, it doesn't minimize the differences. What it does is it elevates what we have in common. We're not trying to become St. Matt's Church of Christ. We're not, that's not who we're trying to be. I mean, St. Luke's Church of Christ has a great ring and all that. <laughs> Just consider it. But we're not, we're not trying to change and become them, and they aren't trying to be us. But what we are trying to do is to elevate what we have in common so that the world may know that we're one. And there's going to be different churches and different names and different buildings and different ways of doing things. But when you have the main thing as the main thing, you can be unified. As a church, we talk about our vision is more than us, more than here, but then we have core values, which we call the things that count. And we have this graphic that represents it. Let me show this. Uh, some of you have seen this before, and these are the things that count for us. Following, practicing, partnering, caring, sending. Uh, we're following Jesus because we believe he's Lord, and we put the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus into practice, which leads us to partner with other Christians, which causes us to be caring for our world and causes us to be sent to make other disciples of Jesus. And the way this works for unity is if we're all following the same Jesus, if we're all God's daughters and sons, then we can partner together. Now, it might mean that we practice different and there'll be different ways of partnering or caring or sending. Fine, different churches can, can practice the ways of Jesus different from us. But if we have the main thing as the main thing, 
and we can be united. And we can punch holes in darkness by living out Jesus' prayer for us to be unified. Amen? So if you're trying to figure out how, how do we live not on our high horse of thinking we're the ones that got it right, not, this is a great sermon quote, never being like Jerry Jones holding up our trophy, but instead being like Jesus who rides in on the donkey. What, what can we do? How do we do that? Well, I think one of the lines in Jesus' prayer for his disciples could be fitting for us. So the first section, Jesus prays for himself in John 17. The last section, Jesus prays for us. But the middle section, Jesus prays for his, the apostles, the disciples. Uh, let me read a verse of that to you from verse 15 to 16. Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. So Jesus' prayer for the disciples is not that they would be taken out of the world. It's not that they're just going to withdraw and be independent all by themselves, never interacting with the rest of the world. That's not Jesus' desire for them. But Jesus' desire is that they would be protected from the evil one. They wouldn't act like the evil one because they don't belong to this world. They're in the world, but they don't belong to the world. So maybe the way that we punch a hole in the darkness and become unified is in a world that is so divided and always bickering and always fighting about who has the ideas correct, that we would instead be the kind of people that understand it's not about the ideas, it's about the people. That the greatest commandment is to love God and to love people. That that's what matters the most. Carlos Whitaker, who's a, um, a Christian writer, speaker, who's actually going to be here at Westover in, uh, in June with my friend Annie Downs, he says it this way. He says, don't stand on issues... Walk with people. We live in a world that stands on the issues and walks over people if you don't have the same understanding of the issue as me. We're going to stand on the issue, and if you don't stay in the same place as me, I'll walk all over it. And the church looks too much like the world in that way, far too often. How many of you saw this commercial? Take a look at this, this ad right here. Do you remember this from the Super Bowl, Right? Did you see any of the follow-up after this? Do you know some people have opinions about this? I don't know if you know that, but people have strong opinions about this ad. And I've heard people go, well, what do you think? They spent a lot of money on this, or, or they did this, and they had this quote, and they had this person. Maybe Christians don't need to have a strong opinion about how someone else is communicating the message of Jesus. Maybe we don't need to create this as an issue that we divide over. Maybe that's not where we need to stand. Did you hear about there was a revival at a university in Kentucky, at Asbury? How many of you heard about that? You know what's crazy? After that, everyone felt the need to go on social media and say, well, I think this is good, or I think this is bad, or why didn't they say this, or why did they say that, or maybe they need this person, or maybe they don't need this. Why, why do we need to have an opinion about that? Seriously, why? Like, you're not there. You're not a part of it. You weren't from Asbury. You don't live in Kentucky. Thank God. You aren't there. You don't ha- I'm just kidding. You don't have to have an opinion, because the way we function as Christians too often is we're like a barrel of crabs. That as soon as, soon as someone tries to do something, we're just going to pull them down. Because that's what the world does. In sports, in business, in politics, we're all just like crabs just pulling each other down. Maybe we don't need to be like the world. Maybe we can be in the world, but we don't have to act like the world when it comes to issues. Maybe we don't need to stand on issues, but we need to walk 
with people because that's what matters the most. Our ideas are important. Theology matters. It really, really does. I'm not diminishing that. What I'm doing is I'm trying to elevate the lordship of Jesus. When I was in grad school, uh, I had a, uh, my Hebrew professor, a brilliant man. His, his PhD was from Harvard. And if you have a stereotype about what people look like from Harvard, like, shame on you, that's wrong to do it. Uh, it's probably right in this case, but don't, don't do that. He's a brilliant man. And one day we're in class, and he kind of just goes off on this rant as we're talking about ways to interpret the language that the Old Testament is written in. And he kind of gets in this kind of like this little sidetrack, and he goes, you know what? I spent my whole life debating over this and this and this, but when it all comes down to it, it's do you love God and do you love people? And that's all that matters. Maybe we've lost the importance of what really matters. That the way that you're going to punch a hole in the darkness and the way that the world will know that Jesus is who he says he is, is if we'd stop standing on issues, but instead we'd learn to walk and love people. So maybe this time of year we ask, have we gotten lost because we look too much like the world when it comes to fighting over issues instead of loving people? Maybe you and I, maybe this week, we think about what does it mean to ride the donkey, the humble donkey, when it comes to differences, disagreements, to different issues, instead of always being on the high horse like the world. And the reason we do this is very simple, because we want the world to know Jesus, because that's what matters the most. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us to remember your prayer for us. God, help us to remember that your desire is that we would be one. Your prayer isn't that we would get all the ideas right. It's not like that we would have everything perfectly figured out. Your prayer isn't that we would fully do it exactly perfectly like you want. Your prayer is that we would be unified because we are your sons and your daughters. And as any parent knows, nothing breaks the heart of a parent more than when their kids are fighting. Nothing breaks the heart of a parent more than when their kids are fighting. So God, may we remember that the next time we find ourselves standing on an issue instead of walking with people, people that you were willing to die for. And may we remember that what atones and what makes right all the wrongs in our past, our present, and our future is in our ability to try harder. What atones for us is you and your death on the cross. And so may we cling to that righteousness and extend that love to others. So may we, we bow ourselves low so that you would be lifted up. May we bow down with our preferences and our desires and our prejudice so that you would be lifted In the name of the resurrected Christ, we pray.